Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. I'm not a gambler at heart, at least I never considered myself one. Cast back in one of my first trips to the United States with some good friends to the West Coast. Along the way, from San Francisco, Napa Valley, Yosemite, Death Valley, Palm Springs and LA, we had to find our way to Las Vegas, a place we knew little of outside of the feed of American television shows. It was certainly eye-opening, and while smaller than today, still a big tourist attraction and heavily focused on gambling. At the time, making any bet on a table of chance was a struggle for me personally, but together with my three companions, we clubbed together and put a corner or a four-way bet on the roulette table. When one of our numbers came up, you could hear my roar of excitement across the floor. Our payout was a whopping $32 split four ways, but far greater on our dopamine reward centers. But that was the beginning and end of my betting career, and I left Vegas firmly in the winner column and certain I was not going to slide down that slippery slope. While I may not have gambled money since, I was gambling in other ways, albeit not consciously. As a younger, invincible version of me, I knew no fear and jumped out of fully serviceable planes for fun and sought out thrill experiences galore. In general, everything around us is something of a gamble and everything we do is essentially a gamble and consists of weighing up odds. Life is but a series of gambles. Everything has risks. And based on an excellent book by Maria Konnikova, The Biggest Bluff, our best bet is to learn how to make good bets. This is true in healthcare. I'm sure many healthcare leaders feel like they're gambling on a daily basis as they try to navigate the long list of variables and changing demands of our health system. All around, regulations are changing, but for many, if they keep sticking with the basic formula and come out on top the majority of the time, it can be hard to change. We have seen some compelling evidence and data that tells us that our fee-for-service model may have worked in the past, but is no longer serving us. Our current system has been stretched by the burgeoning treatment choices, a variable cost basis, and a growing demand for care in an aging population struggling with a large number of chronic, but preventable conditions. We know value-based care offers a better model, but its implementation rates remain stubbornly low. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down Show as I talk with Sandy Myerson, a principal at ECG, and Nate McCarthy, a partner at ECG. 
Hi, Sandy. Hi, Nate. Welcome to the show. Hi, Dr. Nick. Thanks for having us. Hey, Dr. Nick. Yeah, thanks for having us. So uh, we're talking about the challenges of our healthcare system, and I think uh, it would be extraordinary if uh, most people haven't had some intersection, some difficulty. And if you interact with the system in any uh, extensive form, what you seem to experience is this sort of constant process to do things. And that in part is driven by fee-for-service. I think we've established over the course of history that fee-for-service really sort of drives activity, doesn't necessarily drive good health or wellness. And we introduce value-based care, but that remains at this, what I consider a relatively low level, about 30% is my understanding. Why are we stuck in the doldrums? Why don't we see this massive increase in what is essentially a better way of delivering healthcare? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a great question. Um, I, I'd say part of that really is change is hard. And even when, when change is positive, uh, we see that with organizations that the move to value requires a lot of operational change, staffing restructuring, and shifts along the way. And, and while we've seen a larger percentage of organizations moving to some form of value-based, right? I think we've seen stats that 60% of them are in some type of value-based arrangement in some fashion. Only about 15% of them are in an arrangement that has downside risk, right? Where the provider organization is in uh, in it with, with more skin, if you will, uh, from that perspective. And, and then it's just coupling with how to further align and, and move some of these Kind of large boats of health systems to align with the shift to value, even if that's in their in their core tenor. So I, I I mean I get that that it's a challenge. You know, change is always difficult. I mean I I think we all sort of resisted at some level. Um, is there some attribution to specific groups? Is this sort of centered? I mean ultimately. Everybody talks about clinicians being the main source of care. They 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 drive everything. Let's let's be clear. Um, and is it down to them? Are they struggling with this? So let me let me address that question. That statement. I think that as a clinician, you know, we go into healthcare to help patients feel better and and be their healthiest self but the incentives are misaligned. And so I, as a clinician, might be incentivized to see as many patients as possible, assuming that I'm delivering high quality care, but I'm not necessarily delivering the highest quality of care. So we have misaligned incentives. The structure and the, and the processes that need to support the clinicians to deliver high value, high quality care um, aren't necessarily in place. And so as Nate said, this is really about aligning incentives. Clinicians come to this work to really care for their patients and deliver the highest quality of care possible, but we don't have the infrastructure and the resources necessarily in place to help them know if they're delivering that high quality care and reimbursing them for that care delivery model. And so um, as we think about what makes high quality care, um, assuming that, assuring that patients aren't getting 
uh, infections when they come to the hospital and assuring that they're discharged in a timely way and aren't readmitted somewhere else or back to that same hospital. Um, what information does the physician have or the clinician have to know what the outcome is for that patient and what resources exist within that organization to support the team to deliver that high quality care? So, I, I mean, you make some great points. As I, I always start from this principle. I think everybody comes in, almost universally, let's put to one side the small minority that don't, but everybody comes in with the intention of doing good and delivering great care, but they're struggling with the system that is sort of driving them towards a, um, a, a process, a sequence. You know, it's a widget factory, for want of another term, um, but we have better value. Is is this a better model? Is there a way that this can be successfully implemented so that people continue to deliver good care, but are also getting paid appropriately? Yeah, that's, I think absolutely. And and we've seen successful models out there, right? Folks can go back to the Kaiser model for years of being vertically integrated, of, of aligning all that. But you've got many other success stories that have emerged more recently. But from our perspective, we look at that in sort of three different components aligning hand in hand. It's having the payer contracts in place to move to value so that you're getting revenue that comes in the door that aligns with the outcomes that you're trying to achieve as a clinician, as Sandy talked about. You, you then need to make sure that you've got uh, physician compensation and overall sort of incentive structures align so that the staff, the clinicians, the providers are all focusing on that from, from their own uh, financial component, matching with the revenue that the organization is getting. And then the, organiza the op organization needs to provide the operational components to that. Uh, and I say this, that right, everybody is coming in with the right intentions. Uh, if the data isn't there, if the workflows aren't designed the right way, if the structure isn't there on the hospital side, on the ambulatory side, communicating out to the, the community and that collaboration, it sort of all falls apart, right? That clinician may see that patient in their practice. They may discharge them from the hospital. They feel they're doing all the right things. Lo and behold, they were readmitted to you know some neighbor hospital 22 days later, unbeknownst to you, or they may have had a cardiac event and you're not monitoring that at home, or you're not connected to that, that solution. It's hard to course correct the people. It's hard to course correct processes without that information and without the organization making those investments. So if you go back to the point that you made earlier on that, uh, you know, there's a, a relatively low percentage of groups that are actually at risk. Is that, pushing this into a, a domain where, well, it's interesting, but we're not really doing it. And we've got this whole other model. How do you get people to shift? Because ultimately, you know, as I think about it as a clinician, Sandy, I, I go, in many instances, the best possible care is no care. And I, I don't mean that as nothing, as you understand. It's, you know, no interference, do no harm, let's say. How do we sort of enable that? That's a great question. And I think we're still struggling with how to um, ensure that the incentives really are aligned. If, if, as, if a hospital is reimbursed for the number of procedures they're doing and high, high revenue procedures, and the pay for performance side of things doesn't match that or come close to that, it's going to be really hard to change behaviors. So I think that's really a barrier to 
getting better adoption of these approaches to care. I, I think great point. And, you know, as you think about that down at the sort of the coal face, as I often describe it, I think I'm probably dating myself by using that term. But, um, you know, it's it's the people that are working that are sort of disconnected. And and for me, it feels like there's tremendous opportunity, but it has to be driven at a higher level within the organization in terms of, um, you know, how do you operationalize that, Nate? Yeah, I think you operationalize it by putting it in front of everybody. I mean, you've got to be really clear. I think about, heck, this goes back almost 14 years ago for me when I was first focusing on readmissions that there's all the data and evidence in the world. Uh, what made the biggest change for us was making it public, meaning that we we posted in physician offices, uh, physician lounges and in their offices, initially blinded data that showed what readmission rates were and then unblinded it and and sort of the sure nature of competition or not wanting to be the worst led to that. And then accelerate that to where we are in 2022. It's about making it known, hey, these are our priorities. Yes, everybody wants to cure every treat disease out there, treat every patient appropriately, but only spend the, that certain money. It's important of being really clear on what the focus is from the organization, understanding the data, and, and I sort of hit on the world of being data supported as opposed to data led is right. At the end of the day, we're humans taking care of humans. It's important that that stays at the center of all of this and that we're using the data to inform us. We're getting sound data to lead into that. But we've got to rely on the experience and the people in front of that. And then the leaders of those organizations need to be very clear in, in how they're pushing that forward if they're shifting to value based. And, and to that point of the low percentage uh, to ramble on a little bit, this is a bit like a accelerated S curve that if you're part, if you've got one foot in and you're not totally committed, it's hard to see the change, right? It's sort of like, well, I'm going to go work out once a month. You're not going to get the results you're expecting to get. If you've got both feet and two canoes to use lots of analogies here, it's hard to go in one direction or the other. But once you're committing the value, you want to quickly get to a capitated model or a higher risk model as soon as you can while recognizing you've got to have operational pieces in place. Otherwise, you're just set up to fail, right? You, you don't run the marathon without the proper training and preparation. The same thing exists with operations and infrastructure and support around moving the value. Yeah, I, I think great points that, you know, the challenge is that sort of commitment. And I think that the fitness analogy is probably resonates with a lot of people and, you know, give it a few weeks and it will be the January the 1st rush to the gym and then the uh, <laughs> the big drop off. Um, you know, maybe we'll have the same thing with, with value-based care. But if we could sort of capture the essence of what was necessary, and I think you've seen success, you've managed to navigate success for organizations. Tell us what that looks like and, you know, Put to one side the, uh, the the list of of people and you know the competition because I think that's a huge contributor. But there must be other elements to that. Yeah. So so Dr. Nick, from my perspective, it's really around um, understanding what the evidence based practices are. We talk about evidence based practices, but in my experience, we as in healthcare do not do a good job of standardizing and implementing those standardized, those evidence-based practices and standardizing the workflows. And so 
really working with clinicians to define those workflows that Nate talked about and, and standardize them and implement them broadly across an organization will help get that organization to a place where they can deliver that high value care and improve those clinical quality outcomes. If that piece isn't in place, then we're never, an organization is never going to be able to, to succeed in, in solely value-based care or, value, or pay for performance. Uh, the data that Nick talks about is, is what, are those, what are those process measures? How are we doing in those process measures? And are we doing what we said we would do? So, and, and understanding then how that correlates to the clinical outcomes, all those pieces need to be in place. And then feedback to give feedback to the clinicians around how they're doing and tying it back to individual patients so that they, uh, so clinicians really understand the importance of doing this work in a very specific way. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that, that feedback mechanism is essential because, you know, in many instances, and I, I, I go back years to the sort of pricing of drugs and, you know, we, we would carry around essentially a list of, uh, a relatively short list for most clinicians. I, um, of drugs that we use frequently, and then something would come along and go, wow, that's useful. And we had no feedback mechanism that said, well, actually, you're prescribing something that's, you know, thousands of percent more in terms of pricing. So that instant or, you know, near real time, that's got to be built into some of the, uh, the systems. Do we have the capacity to do that? How do we go about doing that? We do. I mean, most most uh, technologies, especially your core EHR, has has some of those components built in. Uh, at right at that point, that's then focusing on what's the workflow. How can technology support and and augment that workflow to make it easier? Um, and and then how do you design that, or how do you work with your IT partners to design those uh, technologies to make it easy to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing? Right, so that. The default drug in that example, Dr. Nick, is the less expensive drug with the same outcomes or better outcomes than the more expensive drug, right? That's, that's better for everybody, maybe minus the, the drug supplier, but that's better for everybody. And that's that's the, the premise across the board here that that data is, and then you focus sort of on the quality improvement, that data is going to lead to better decision making. You're going to implement those better decisions. You're going to iterate upon that and continue to get better. And the value keeps going up for the patient. It goes up for the provider. And this all sounds well in theory. It's then the matter of going, how do I apply this across the board? Uh, we've seen this on the ambulatory side too of, okay, but wait a second, I'm, I'm used to handling a, a panel of 1800 as a PCP. How do I do that now? Well, there are, there are ways in value-based that you can maintain that panel. There's also ways we've seen that where folks have a smaller panel based off of acuity and they're focusing on the higher Medicare or Medicare Advantage population. And the processes and the workflows are all still the same, right? From a work, from a, how the organization implements those workflows and those workflow improvements from there. So it, it sounds to me like you've, you've had success, you've seen success. Um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me as I was listening to you, um, you were talking about getting agreement for clinical protocols and evidence-based medicine. And it's not that people don't practice evidence-based medicine. Let's be clear. Everybody's, you know, has the best intentions. But, you know, sometimes it's a memory issue or it's at least familiarity, keeping up to date. You, you've obviously seen success at that and bringing people together to get them to agree. T tell us a little bit about that, Sandy. Yeah, so it's really about... Um 
helping the team appreciate that the outcomes that they think are happening with their patients aren't really happening and that it's tied back to that variability that exists. And so when when clinicians, providers, physicians really see the data, they say, wow, I didn't realize that those were our outcomes. Let's what can we do differently to make this make the results better? And and so finding out what drives them, what motivates them, gets them to the table. And and then we take away some of the I'll leave it up to the physician's discretion, but get agreement from the team to say, this is how we're going to do care for these patients in this environment. So I, I know there's a part of me that, that hears on, I, in, on my shoulder as I'm listening to some of the pushback as I hear frequently is, that sounds an awful lot like cookbook medicine. Am I still bringing value to this? How do you answer that? Yes, it's, you can tailor all of those solutions for your individual patient, but there have to be some really good reasons why you would deviate from evidence-based practices. So if there's a if there's a way for you to document that or to discuss that, then by all means, tailor it for your patient. But follow the evidence-based guidelines for all of your patients to get that best outcome. So it's that uh, genuine flair that, you know, the, the clinicians bring that goes above and beyond the existing sort of standards that allow them to deliver that personalized care in this particular instance. So as, as you look at this, um, Nate, you, you've, you've seen this, you've seen the, the sort of bringing together. And I think, you know, one of the foundations is that data piece. What, what are the elements that allow you to deliver that value and still maintain economic viability, which is, I think, one of the, the pushbacks that people have is, well, I, I, it sounds great, but I'm not going to survive it. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think, especially now, you've got to measure the ROI on, on everything. And, and that comes into place with, with the data piece of this. So there's, there's the competition. And that's where I, I would push back on the, the investments from a technology perspective in many cases are what's uh, replacing uh, tasks that just aren't getting done that are, if you're in a value-based arrangement, those are tasks that could prevent a higher cost of care, right? By reaching out to a patient, by getting those check-ins uh, through home monitoring, through other digital tools available to you. Uh, and the same thing happens on investing in analytics and predictability that may exist uh, within your hospitals or within, within a physician enterprise or physician practice. And that's that's then a matter of tying that back from a revenue perspective. You can tie even some of this back to uh, there's a ton of physician burnout when we think about quadruple aim on um, what that means by alleviating these administrative tasks off of the physicians and clinicians, putting that on to technology. And, and to that point, we want them to have personalized decisions. Personalized and precision medicine is great. And and Doing that with data and technology uh, as opposed to a finger to a wind is, is where we need to be going and value-based care really helps you get there. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to sort of round this out as, as I'm listening to you. This is the best possible version of medicine. It's the medicine that you know all of the clinicians went into healthcare to practice. I want to say that, you know, that's also true from the administrative standpoint and from the financial standpoint. People want to deliver the best care, but they have a limited set of resources. And this is the best way to allocate those resources. And I think what I've heard very clearly from both of you is that 
it is possible and there's real opportunity to actually deliver uh, against that value. Nate, Sandy, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Dr. Nick. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Fee-for-service should be a waning system being replaced by value-based care that, as you've heard, has and is delivering value to institutions. But it is not yet. It offers value in the form of return on investment, which in the case of one Southeast academic centre with around 725 beds, resulted in over $25 million of savings. Those savings came with improved patient quality and the added bonus that the clinical team returned to practicing good medicine, reducing stress and burnout. Your better pill to swallow is to not leave money on the healthcare table by leading your whole organization to commit to value-based care. You can do that by creating a transparent organization that is data-driven and operationalized for value. Value that is driven by increased quality and decreased costs and the standardization of care that remains personalized and tailored to each individual patient. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.